This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. It's just Tim this week. Uh, sorry we've been gone from your feeds the last couple of weeks. Uh, Nate just had a baby. Uh, he's a couple of weeks into uh, the new life of his second daughter, and so he's kind of in baby world right now. So uh, we haven't had an episode in a little bit, uh, but we've got one now. Uh, Nate couldn't be here. I did an interview with Wade Mullen, and I just want to give you guys a little setup. Uh, for that interview. Uh, Wade is a seminary professor, was a pastor, who has personally experienced and then done a tremendous amount of research, actually did an entire PhD dissertation, on the subject of how churches and institutions essentially protect their image and the kind of manipulative tactics they go through to protect their self-identity when faced with accusations of some form of abuse. So there are a lot of you out there I know who have personally experienced being a part of a church or on staff of the church, a leader in a church, or just, you know, some sort of connection with the church or uh, other Christian institution that something has happened and some sort of flag was raised. There was an issue. There was a concern. And the way the church responded uh, was to essentially go through some form of covering up that concern to protect their image. Uh, If you haven't personally experienced this, I hope you know how prevalent this is. I mean, even just this week, the week that I recorded the interview with Wade, you've got the Catholic Church. I mean, all of them, the Pope, everybody, uh, all the head honchos of the entire Catholic Church getting together to talk about the ways that they have systemically covered up the cries of victims in the church. And just the same week, you have the entire Southern Baptist Convention getting together to talk about the ways that the entire network, uh, denomination, and so many of the churches, and especially the lead pastors within those churches, and especially the celebrity pastors within those churches, the ways they have systematically ignored and covered up cries of abuse within those churches. This stuff is everywhere. It's rampant. I've personally experienced it. I know lots of uh, the listeners to this show also have experienced it. If you haven't, so much of this show is in this interview with Wade is to understand A, it is prevalent, and B, to help you understand how to know when this is happening in your church and to, to be able to spot it. That's essentially what Wade's entire field of research was for. The purpose of it was to help equip people to see when they're being lied to and manipulated by their churches, in large part so we don't become complicit in it. One other piece, Wade and I had a chance to talk in depth about his own personal story. We've kind of alluded on the show in the past. I've got my own story. I haven't really sat down on the podcast and just told everybody what exactly happened. Part of that's I've been waiting for a good friend of mine who went through it all with me to be ready. It's been two years now, and it is still so hard to actually sit down and just talk it all out. It's hard personally. It's also hard knowing that that story being told will then kind of drop you back into that world 
getting emails and phone calls from people uh, who have things to say on one way or the other. So uh, after having a long conversation with Wade, which we recorded, he sat down with his wife and thought, you know what? Like, I just can't share all that right now. Um, and so what we did is we went back and Wade shared a bit more of a generic uh, version of the story. And I, I totally understand this. If, uh, if you haven't been there, you just got to understand this stuff is hard. It could be five, ten years down the road. If you've been a victim of some sort of spiritual abuse or a church making your life wrong, uh, treating you in a certain way, or even if you've just been a witness to seeing someone who is exalted as this kind of great spiritual leader and mentor uh, do atrocious things, uh, it it takes a toll. And even just talking about it uh kind of brings back secondary trauma and stirs the whole pot all over again so part of why i wanted to have this conversation with wade is as i knew he'd been there i knew he'd understood it i could tell just from uh, his research that he had lived this from the inside uh so even though we don't get that full story uh you haven't even heard my full story yet someday hopefully we will but for all those out there who have similar stories uh i just want to use this moment to say i understand we understand how hard it is to even tell those stories. So for some of you, if you don't understand why abuse and the cover-up abuse is an important topic for Christians, especially in the West, um, it's likely because the thousands and thousands and thousands of stories of abuse and systemic cover-up that are out there haven't been told or you haven't been able to hear them because of just how hard it is to tell those stories. So, that's all. Let's get into the interview. Hope it's helpful for you guys. Okay, here it is. Let's just jump right in. Wade, I've never met you. This is us meeting right now. Yeah, very nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. Thanks for coming on. I've been following you on Twitter, and I don't do a lot of Twitter. It exhausts me. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, since I found you, I don't know, s- several months back, you've been essentially sharing some of uh, a dissertation that you recently finished. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've told some other people that reading your tweets, uh, kind of sharing some of your research, feels like you watched everything that I went through a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and it's like reading uh, the script uh, to what I lived through. So uh, however you did it, uh, your research and the kind of topics you've been getting into um, are, I think, really figuring out something <laughs> something important. Uh, so I'm super excited to talk to you. Uh, for everybody who's listening, uh, Nate's not here. He just had a baby. So it's just me doing an interview with Wade. Uh, so you probably won't get any accents or dumb jokes or anything like that. <laughs> so, Wade, maybe just like tell me a little bit about yourself, where you live, what you do, all that. Yeah, um, I'm married. My wife's name is Sarita. We've got three kids. Uh, we live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, uh, where I direct the Master of Divinity program at Capital Bible Seminary and Graduate School, which is a, which is a division of Lancaster Bible College. I've been there now for two years, uh, and before that, I was a pastor on staff at a church for about uh, seven years. Awesome. I'll read the title of your dissertation. Uh, and then I'll let you translate that uh, <laughs> for people. So uh, it's called Impression Management Strategies Used by Evangelical Organizations in the Wake of an Image-Threatening Event. 
So the way I've kind of internalized this in my own brain is it's kind of about abuse and cover-up in evangelical world. Is that sort of right? Yeah, it is. It, it, it includes that. Um, I started out trying to understand how organizations were responding to crises. And what I discovered in that body of research was a specific type of crisis called a scandal, or in some papers that I read, uh, it's called an image-threatening event. Uh, and I thought that was an appropriate label because that's often what's happening in a scandal is the image of the organization is being threatened. And so I wanted to understand how organizations, specifically evangelical organizations, were responding to threats to their image. And what I found in the literature and also in my own personal experience and in my own observation of, of different situations and cases that, that, that I was researching, I found that the predominant behavior enacted by organizations responding to these threats was to use what's called impression management. And um, it was a Canadian sociologist, uh, Irving Goffman, uh, who in 1959 wrote a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And he was one of the first people to put forth this idea of um, individuals and organizations seeking to manage the impressions people were forming of them through their performance. Gotcha. So you kind of took uh, this field of uh, sociological research, impression management, and then went specifically to uh, evangelical institutions. So what motivated you to do that? Kind of what in your uh, background, life history, made this uh, an issue of passion for you? Yeah, well, around the same time that I started studying crises for my dissertation, I also began to go through one at the church where I was serving as a pastor. And we, my wife and I had been at the church for seven years. Um, and in the last two years that we were there, uh, we, we went through an incredibly difficult trial. Um, we described it as a fire uh, that kept growing larger and kept increasing in intensity and was bringing uh, a lot of harm to a lot of people uh, my family included. And so we, we found ourselves in a very difficult situation where we were um, present uh, with people that God had called us to serve, and we had grown to love them. We had grown to develop very close relationships with them. But as those relationships developed, so did our um, awareness of some very evil and devastating things that were happening behind closed doors uh, that were inflicting uh, tremendous uh, trauma on on people. And that uh, became a cause for crisis because we sought to advocate for those individuals. We sought to do what was right. And that was met with some resistance uh, from those above us who wanted to protect the institution and wanted to protect its reputation instead of protecting those who were being harmed. At least that's how we saw it at the time. And, and so we found ourselves in the last two years that we were there um, trying to advocate for those 
who are being harmed while being employed by an organization uh, that we felt wasn't uh, governed by integrity and truth. And, and so it was very difficult uh, to, to both uh, be in a position of serving those and advocating for those who were going through intense suffering and at the same time uh, speak truth to power, uh, be, a, be a dissident uh, in, a, in an organization that was oppressive at, at that time. And, and so for two years, um, we fought uh, to bring change, needed changes. And that, that change didn't happen uh, while we were at that church. And it reached a point where we realized there was nothing left for us to do. There was no higher authority to appeal to. Uh, there were no processes left to, to go through. Um, and we ended up leaving. We ended up walking away. Uh, we had decided that one, we couldn't, uh, I couldn't allow my family uh, to continue to be mistreated. And I also couldn't work uh, at the church. It reached a point where I realized I could not work at the church one day more and still walk with integrity. And so we made a, the hardest decision of our lives uh, to leave people that we had grown to love without telling them why. Um, we didn't feel like that was our place at the time. And so we left and we put the narrative into the hands of the this oppressive system. And the months that followed our departure were, were very, very difficult. Uh, we went and lived in, in a small apartment that one of our family members owned. And we had two small children. And shortly after we left, we found out that my wife was, was pregnant with our third. And um, we had left without um, a job lined up um, without a plan. We just knew God was calling us to, to leave. And, and we, we were suffering um, with a lot of anxiety and a lot of fears, a lot of uncertainty, and also with the pain of knowing that uh, the organization uh, was still headed towards um, darkness. Um, and people were still being mistreated and people were being kept from the truth. And in the months that followed our departure, a lot happened in the church. More and more stuff started coming out. Um, certain leaders were, were forced to resign. And the church was in turmoil. And at one point, about six months after we left, uh, we felt that God was uh, compelling us uh, to go back and to speak to the church. Um, and, and so we did that. Uh, we, we asked the board uh, to call a public meeting. Um, we told them that we were going to meet with the people and we wanted their support. And, and so they did that and they invited us to go and, and speak to the people six months after I had resigned. And so I stood in front of them, you know, with the board and the the front row 
of the auditorium and I told them why I had left. Um, I spoke the truth uh, that the organization, while I was there, the leadership at the organization didn't want to hear. And, and that was an extremely difficult moment for me. Um, and I remember, I remember sharing the story of what we had experienced and um, thinking immediately after, I never want to share this again. And I had just done, done it in front of uh, a crowd of people. And I realized that it was the right thing. It was what needed to happen. Um, in a couple month, a couple weeks later, uh, the board invited us back, and they publicly apologized to us and confessed. Um, and it was very healing. Uh, we had the opportunity to publicly uh, accept their apology and extend our forgiveness. And, and then all of the individuals uh, who were still at the church and had ever served as an elder uh, got up on the platform and together they confessed what they called systemic failure for years to protect the church. And, and I had never seen something like that. Uh, it was moving. Um, people voiced out uh, their acceptance and forgiveness. Uh, I've never seen anything like that since, um, but it was incredibly healing. And after that, we were able to uh, make trips back to uh, weddings and fun funerals and birthday parties and, and were reconciled to the people. And so I went through uh, something that felt like winter, uh, but then I also went through something that felt like spring. And I know most uh, won't get that experience, uh, but for, for us, you know, we, we are incredibly grateful uh, for that experience of spring and new life. And, and then uh, God provided us with a job and a home uh, shortly after that. And so, so I went through this um, incredibly difficult journey while at the same time studying these um, behaviors of deception and impression management uh, for my doctoral work. And, and I realized that the behaviors that I was observing in the research were the same behaviors that I was seeing in abusive individuals and leaders and an abusive system um, that I was surrounded by. And, and so the experience of going through it provided for me a very strong motiv motivation to study it and to research it so that other people might be helped, um, validated, and empowered uh, with uh, the under same kind of understanding that I was over time developing. Wow. And that's the, the job of teaching at the school where you're at now? Yes. Mm -hmm. Cool. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? 
What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Wade, thanks so much for sharing uh, that story. I feel really actually emotional uh, mm. right now listening to you tell that story for the last 20 minutes, uh, partly because there's so much overlap uh, with with my story, um, but then partly because some of the ending of that story is something I don't I don't think I'll ever get to see. Uh, the accountability, the kind, the repentance, the actual public acknowledgement, confession uh, that came later down the road for you. Uh, I imagine that day <laughs> uh, with the church where you kind of took a risk and laid it all out on the stage and then actually had them uh, acknowledge <laughs> complicity in the issue. I, I take it that was a very special and profound moment for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was unlike anything that I've experienced because it, it's as if uh, somebody lifts from your shoulders um, a secret you've been carrying, hmm. um, a burden you, you've been carrying, and at the same time puts on your shoulders uh, a v- validation. Hmm. Uh, and it, it really is something that is quite remarkable. Hmm. I won't get into all the, the details of my own story, but... Uh... I think one of the things you actually point out in your research and it sounds like you went through yourself is kind of the spiral effect where there's one one piece of information presented that threatens the, you know, image and reputation of the lead guy or the institution. And then there's just this like snowballing effect of actions and behaviors that are make the original thing almost pale in comparison and you end up the whistleblowers get get become the next victims. And, uh, some point in that stage, I remember coming home and, uh, and there are multiple, I wasn't even the only one. There are uh, six of us that, uh, basically just raised a red flag against the lead pastor at our church. And Mm, it wasn't child abuse. It was basically pretty similar to Mars Hills, just kind of bullying authoritarian leadership style. And, um, and staff mostly getting kind of beat up from it. Mm. And, but then as soon as we, you know, raised that red flag, then we became, you know, the scapegoats and the enemies that were trying to take down the church and all that, mm-hmm. that kind of lingo. And I remember coming home one day and just weeping in my backyard. Uh, uh. And the feeling was something I had never felt before. And it was the need for vindication. Mm. Uh, and, and I hear you say when you guys decided not to defend yourselves, right, uh, it opens up and then have a church, uh, who, you know, people, uh, trust, <laughs> right. There's authority there that, that people look to tell a false story about you and what your motivations were and why you're leaving or why you said what you said or whatever, and know that the, the road you're called to, ch- to, to take is to not 
take to social media or whatever and not defend yourself. It was one of the hardest moments of my life. And right. I realized it was one of the moments where I felt the closest union to Jesus hmm. uh, that I had ever felt. And the irony is still so hard for me to grasp that it was at the hands of my own church, yeah. <laughs> at uh, my own pastors that caused me to feel uh, <laughs> this sense of, of union and the suffering of, of Jesus. Uh, but I look back on it with this kind of really strange mixture of, of gratitude and still, uh, heartache. Yeah. So you, you've walked that territory. Um, (laughs) it's, it is both the hardest experience of your life. Um, and in some ways the most freeing, um, (laughs) because it, forces you to look at truth perhaps in ways you've never looked at it before. Um, and it's not that you would want to go through it again. Um, but you come out of it and you realize, yeah, um, this, this really sucked. Um, this was terrible. Uh, this was hard in, in, in so many ways that I can't even describe yet. Um, it was during that time when, you know, like like you said, um, I saw Jesus the clearest. Um, I walked with him in ways that I never walked with him before. Um, and yeah, I've never heard of, uh, never thought of it in the terms that you've you've placed it. The the, the irony of the of the church uh, in some ways be, being a source of that. But I get it. Well, okay, let's, uh, (laughs) I want to circle back. We'll kind of get to a few different things. I got a bunch of questions for you. Uh, but maybe let's just kind of start getting into, so (laughs) sounds like you're actually done doing some of this research (laughs) in your program while going through all this. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and what I was discovering was that the, the, the tactics that I was seeing in the abuse of people in my life, uh, not just those that were mistreating me, but also those that were uh, perpetrating uh, crimes against others. Uh, The tactics that I saw uh, in their lives were the same tactics that I was was Hmm. learning about that organizations and other systems use to manage people, to coerce people, to protect their uh, image and, and their reputation and and so I was those two things were just over time coming together in as as one in the same hmm. uh, real quick then did it make it easier or harder you think for you personally to go through this having some of the background <laughs> right knowing uh, these patterns yeah. knowing these strategies that institutions take, uh, was that helpful for you, or did it make it even more painful that this was happening at your own church? It made it both easier and harder. Mm-hmm. Um, easier in the sense that I I received some validation. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wasn't crazy. Mm-hmm. I knew that what I was seeing um, were indeed red flags. It also empowered me uh, to identify uh, these tactics, to... Uh, give a label to these tactics and then also to describe these tactics. And I, I think when you can do that and in some ways gives you power over them and 
then um, this is where it became hard. Once I saw that this was true, I felt like in different occasions I needed to say that in the presence of people who were using these tactics or observing it themselves. Mm. And that, of course, was not received very well. Uh, so at one point, I said to, to, to a man, um, here's, here's what you've just said. There are three things that you've said. And here's why I think you said these things. Here's what I think you're trying to do. And after I said that, he just smiled. And, and, and I'll never forget that smile. It was as if he was saying, you got me. Hmm. And I'm, I'm proud of myself for how tactical I'm being. And now you see that too. And, and so that was, that was hard um, because that then uh, was met uh, with more mistreatment. Um, so, I mean, what if, if an abuser, if an abusive person or organization relies on their ability to maintain secrecy and someone comes along and says, I know what you're doing. I know what this tactic is. I know the desire, the intention that might be behind it. How are they going to respond to someone who's trying to bring down uh, their, their, their walls uh, that, that, that they're hiding behind. Mm. And so that's what made it difficult in some ways. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, it sounds like a significant part of your motivation then, or the, the purpose behind the research is trying to enable uh, not necessarily the lead pastors of the world, mm -hmm. uh, but those around them to be able to discern and kind of see through uh, the BS, for lack of a better term, yeah. Yeah. Um, and to kind of know when we're being lied to. So just kind of give it to us. Like in all your research, I mean, you've got a 270-page dissertation, but <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of give us yeah. some of the most important takeaways in your mind of uh, what people need to know is prevalent, especially uh, in church world. Yeah, sure. Um, right. I think it starts with understanding some some theory uh, behind impression management um, and behind its use. Uh, perhaps um, most important to understand is that uh, those who learn tactics of impression management and use them to hide dark secrets learn a flexible script. Uh, so over time, they not only learn what these tactics are, uh, but they learned how to use them interchangeably, depending on the situation and depending on the audience. And so somebody who is perhaps um, seeking to manipulate those who have less power uh, will perhaps use tactics like intimidation or, or ingratiation, flattery, favors, uh, knowing that those tactics might be uh, received by those who have less power. But when they get into a room with those who have greater power, uh, they might use a different set of tactics. Or uh, it's unlikely that they're going to intimidate those that they perceive to be more powerful than them. And so they might use uh, what's called uh, supplication, uh, where uh, a person highlights their uh, weaknesses, uh, their helplessness, their stress, uh, whatever it might be that would engender within the hearer, within the target, a sense of sympathy, and so out of that sympathy, they extend help. And so, the abusive person is using different tactics for different people, depending on their goals for each group. 
And, and so I think that's really important to understand because what, what often happens is somebody who has less power, when they're abused, mistreated by someone who has greater power, they might uh, go to someone who has authority over that, over that leader uh, or even others who, who know that leader and say, listen, this is what he or she did to me. This is how he or she has been treating me. Well, if, if the experience of those people is, is one of only seeing uh, kindness and flattery and ingratiation, uh, supplication, uh, then they're, they're going to hear about that intimidation, that hostility, that aggression, and say, you're crazy. Um, this is not the person I know. And, and so there is in the abusive person, I think, an ability to, to shift, um, to shapeshift, to, to disguise um, uh, true intentions. And so that will manifest itself in different ways depending on the context. So I think that's one theoretical uh, concept that is important for people to, to, to understand. I think another uh, concept that, that that needs to needs to be grasped is realizing that often behind the need to manage the impressions that others are forming of you is a desire to protect your identity, uh, to bolster that 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 identity, and so. If there is a truth, um, an ugly truth about you that you don't want people to discover, you might manage the impressions others are forming of you to protect that, that, that truth as a way of maintaining this identity uh, that perhaps you, 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 you are clinging to about yourself or you want people uh, to see in you. And so what these um, become then are identity threats. And, and so often someone might, uh, for example, um, a pastor in, in, in a church who has founded his church, who has done a lot of the work to make it successful, uh, might begin describing it as his church, as his ministry, as his people. And if something threatens uh, the reputation of that church or the, the stability of that church. If a crisis comes along that has the potential to, to impact the legitimacy of that church, then that pastor might respond to that by, by uh, dismissing it or trying to, to discredit those uh, who, are, who are bringing it to their attention not so much as a means of protecting the church, but as a protecting himself and his own identity, which is tied to the success of the church. And and so I think that's important to understand too that that often what you're what you're 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 confronting in an abusive system or church or leader is narcissism. It's not just that they care about the church, and they might say that. They might even say they care about the reputation of Jesus. I don't think that's what they really care about. Mm. What they care about is their own reputation, their own livelihood, their own identity, because they're finding life in these things. This is this is their lifeline that they cling to, their church, their success. And if something threatens that, if that comes crashing down, they, then then 
they've they don't know who who they will be without that so that's that's another just concept that i think is important right and the identity piece works both ways right with the individuals and institutions where the lead pastor the founding pastors clearly you know staked his uh life and identity on the the reputation of the church Mm -hmm. but then so much of uh, evangelical churches work the opposite, where the church itself is entirely uh, based upon one charismatic personality, Mm -hmm. the kind of, you know, celebrity persona. And so if anything tarnishes that stage performance of that persona, then it's it's a perceived threat to the entire church. And then I'm sure you've seen the language of, you know, this is an attack on Jesus's church. This is a spiritual warfare. Mm -hmm. And then it all gets painted in these over-spiritualized, crazy-making terms. Yeah, that's that's a really good point um, because it's not always the case that the the pastor creates all of this. Sometimes the people uh, create this environment and create this structure in which they need a keystone uh, to hold everything together. And so they go looking for a very charismatic person to be that keystone. And then they'll protect that keystone at all costs, realizing that if uh, if the keystone is removed, uh, then the entire structure might collapse. And so just recently, I, you know, I was in you know, um, involved in w- w- with a case and, and helping some people in the middle of that case. Uh, and one of the comments I was emerging uh, from that group of people was, uh, well, what is going to happen uh, to this organization now that so-and-so has been removed? Um, and so that person can be uh, set up to be this 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 keystone that holds everything together. And I think that's a mistake that churches make. I know you made a point in, uh, I think it was an early part of your research. Uh, it was kind of when you're differentiating individual and, and organizational. But you made a point that I kind of you know double circled it because it mm. just uh, struck such a chord with me, was that uh, it takes a team. It takes a team of people, often the board, <laughs> often other uh, elders, pastors, sometimes the congregation itself, to all, to some extent, participate in these uh, image uh, image management tactics. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first the first thing I thought of, because we had the whole thing, the board, which is sounds like it's pretty typical, is kind of a bunch of yes men cronies mm-hmm. uh, that kind of all just serve the ultimate decision of the lead pastor. But there was this moment that I just never thought, uh, I just never had an imaginary space for this, which was uh, a small group leader in the church, so a lay leader, but, you know, clearly very invested in, in the church. And uh, when the confrontation started and this whole sort of crisis escalated, there was a moment where she actually got uh, vocally and, <laughs> and visibly upset with another leader in the church for sharing the names of the pastors, myself included, who had uh, essentially raised a a flag because she didn't want any part of her vision of what this church was to be tarnished. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm sure you've got a sociological term for this. For me, I just thought it was, you know, crazy. Uh, But it was someone who had whose life was staked to this thing mm-hmm. and yet was in an emotional space based on what the church was to her mm-hmm. that uh, she actually preferred ignorance and was willing to say that out loud. I wish you had never told me. 
yeah. so that I could have maintained this facade. Yep, yep. And and Goffman has a uh, has a term that that uh, might be s- similar to that, and it's called tactful inattention. And so it's hmm. when um, somebody uh, perhaps is violating social norms, is acting at, at, out of line, uh, but people uh, might choose to not give that violation of social rules or norms any kind of attention in order to maintain tact. Hmm. And, and so he calls that uh, tactful inattention. And so I think it's similar in the sense that you know someone says, don't, don't force me to look at this. We shouldn't be looking at this. We shouldn't be looking at, 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 at this at all because of what that might mean, the disruption that that might cause. And it would be better for us to go on without the disruption than to face that if we were to give this attention. So I guess I got two questions. You could kind of tackle them uh, however you choose best. One is, so you studied a few uh, evangelical organizations, two churches and a school, but then I know you've seen lots of other uh, case studies and, and research. So the first question is sort of, what are the main tactics that we need to look out for uh, mm-hmm. from the, the powers that be within those institutions and, and kind of how do we spot them? But then the second one, uh, and this is kind of the one I was just getting at, which strikes an equally emotional chord with me, is how do we make sure we're not enabling this system, right? Like how, how do we make sure that we are not perpetuating, if we're a lay leader, a small group mm-hmm. leader, or even just a longtime uh, member of a church, mm-hmm. that we aren't helping this game be played or helping yeah. Yeah. Uh, produce the, the facade, right? Um, how do we not be complicit? Yeah, yeah, that's good. I, I have a list of about 31, 32 in different impression management tactics. And, and so it's, it's hard to pinpoint uh, which ones are primary because it depends, again, on the situation and, and, and the audience. Uh, but generally speaking, based on my own research and based on also my, my experience, uh, the, the, the primary tactic that you might see uh, before any kind of exposure happens is ingratiation. Uh, where the the person seeks to win the favor of their target, uh, whoever's receiving the the communication, seeks to win their favor through flattery or through uh, what's called a, 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 a opinion conformity. Uh, so uh, you might might see that when someone says, "Hey, you know, we're we're really on the same page." Um, there's more that we agree on than 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 what we disagree on. So, so this is all attempts to increase the other person's liking of you. And if the other person likes what is being said about them, or likes what they're hearing from you, uh, then it's easier to control that. That, that that person, and so I do think we see this a lot in the church. Um, I see it in introductions at conferences uh, when a pastor is introduced uh, by the host. Uh, they are almost deified in some cases, hmm. 
And then that person gets up on the stage and flatters the host or the audience in, in return. And it goes beyond just mere encouragement. Um, it exemplifies people, uh, telling them that perhaps they're, they're the best group in the world, uh, or they're the cream of the crop, or they're premier, uh, or they're, um, they're the, 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 the smartest um, person um, that they've ever met. You know, th those kind of things um, I would categorize as in in ingratiation. And people are watching that. And people are learning that 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 script, and so I think that is pervasive in our churches, um, and and it creates a cycle. It creates a cycle of of worship and praise, where flattery is expected to be returned, and if it's not returned, uh, then the person who's doing the flattery um, begins to question why it's not being returned, and flattery, I think. Uh, becomes cyclical in the sense that those who who receive the flattery feel a need to return it and as other people join in that you create a culture of, of fandom and the flattery over time pushes out dissenters pushes out anybody who might try to interject a sincere uh, word of criticism or truth they're pushed out uh, because they're not they're not willing to play the game, and and I think that is that 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 is really dangerous, and so I see that a lot. Um, I think I would call that one of the primary tactics that I see, and what you'll find is that uh, just about every person, um, in fact, every person that that I've known uh, to to be an, an abuser in some way, uh, at one point exhibited extreme kindness and was 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 very charming um even r kelly if you if you watch that that documentary uh was described as very charming and and so that is a that is a ruse very often um that is a a, a form of deception uh it's a pit it's a trap um because people so easily um and and for good reason uh, receive that accept it uh, but what they don't know is behind that flattery is a desire to possess something that you have, mm. that the abusive person wants. They see you as an object. They objectify you. There's something that they want from you that they want to possess. And so they use ingratiating tactics to, to, to get you to act according to, to voluntarily act according to the hidden plans that they have for you. So it's very, it's, it, it, it's very seductive and tricky. And, and then I would say another primary uh, tactic uh, that perhaps is more defensive. Um, there's a number that 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 are, are defensive. I, say, I think once the th once the threat emerges, once the exposure happens, then you start seeing a lot of different tactics coming out. Um, and and often you'll you'll see multiple multiple impression management tactics contained in just one sentence, one paragraph, and so it can produce a lot of confusion. Um, but uh, what I've observed is is generally uh, the the person or the organization uh, will use excuses um, or use different types of ju justifications, and both of both of those are intended to escape uh, co consequences. Um, so if 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 I can be excused for my behavior, 
by suggesting that it was a mistake, uh, that I didn't mean it, or suggesting that I didn't have the knowledge that, that I needed to act. And so you see that a lot uh, right now where uh, churches or leaders will say, well, knowing what I know now, I would have made a different choice then, or I didn't have the information that I needed to, to, to act. And so there's all these different kinds of excuses. And in my situation, it was he was tired. Tired. Yeah. 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 And and that and that's a specific type of excuse called called d denial of, of volition, uh, where the person argues that they didn't have the will or the ability to act in 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 a in a different way. And the question then is: Is that a legitimate excuse? Um, and and that's and that's hard to determine. But I think it's important to recognize that these are excuses. And ironically, oftentimes when you hear someone using these excuses, they will follow it up by saying, and this isn't an, this is not an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I want to say, yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> the question is whether or not it is a legitimate excuse. Um, justifications uh, in abuse scenarios, uh, what we often see is someone justify the abuse uh, by suggesting that uh, the person who was abused is to blame for it, um, or at least is partly blamed because they um, they they agreed to it, or uh, because of their attire, or because of their personality, that somehow they brought it on themselves. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and this really has caused a lot of a lot of harm to people. Um, another justification is to downplay the the, the damage done. Um, it's to suggest, well, no real harm was done, uh, so I shouldn't face any consequences. It's like someone saying, yes, I did start a fire in the house over there, but it didn't burn anything. Uh, so so those are justifications um, that basically have the same goal as, as, as an excuse, uh, but they take different forms. So those are all, are all defenses. And then what I often see attached to those defenses is... Um, some kind of promotion or some kind of pro-social behavior. And so uh, someone might say, someone might concede the basic facts of, of, of an event. Yes, this happened. It, you know, the exposures um, has happened. You know, it's, it's undeniable uh, that these abuses occurred, that this mistreatment occurred, uh, that this wrong behavior occurred. So we're going to concede the basic facts of that. Uh, but we're going to offer these excuses or these justifications as a means of escaping any, any, any penalty. And then also we're going to promote our values. We're going to promote our past successes. Uh, we're going to make promises that this will never happen again as a way of saying we shouldn't be linked to this behavior. Mm. And, and, and so you have these promotions. And then you also have uh, what I see often is what's called pro-social behavior uh, where the organization or the person knows that uh, certain changes are expected of them. And so they might move towards uh, quickly uh, putting on an event or uh, committing to train people or educate people. And, and, and that's all good, but the problem becomes if that is designed to repair an image, uh, then, then the core problem hasn't been solved. And so I've seen that with organizations, and I've worked with some, you know, where um, I've said to them, if you're going to if you're going to do this, um, if you're going to put on this event, if you're going to um, start um, 
going through these measures to demonstrate change, you need to do it because it's the right thing to do, not because you simply want to demonstrate to people that you shouldn't be linked to this past behavior anymore. So right. those are some common ones. Yeah. So it seems like one assumption, which is probably a big one worth talking about, that this is all built on, is that we don't want to be a part of an institution that is using deceitful, manipulative tactics to preserve its image, right? Mm -hmm. So the assumption is, okay, if we see these things, you know, like you said, you've uh, you talked about ingratiation and flattery. So, you know, and I, I have images of all of these things, examples in my own head of conferences, like you're saying, or um, where we would go to leadership. Um, host leadership meetings and it would just be the lead pastors of each church just kind of like flirting with each other on stage for three hours. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, mm -hmm. so I'm seeing that. Mm -hmm. Now I know maybe this is a part of a, a culture that will tend toward not being <laughs> truth tellers, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, but being image managers. And, and you and I have both seen that that can then spiral to costs of human mm -hmm. <laughs> human harm that we probably never would have imagined uh, right. in the past. But but then that's only helpful if we're all willing to gather around and say, and we won't be a part of anything like that, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So kind of give me a sense, you know, obviously the scope of your research was not, you know, how bad is, <laughs> is Protestant Christianity in America? Like how much trouble are we in? But what is your take? Like, Clearly, one of the assumptions of the research project is that cases of abuse and then cases of cover-up of that abuse are prevalent mm -hmm. uh, in evangelical churches. Hundreds of cases just in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Some make the news, some don't, mm -hmm. but ruin people's lives nonetheless. Uh, is this just, uh, I guess, the first question, how bad is the problem? And then is it worse in in religious contexts? Uh is it worse specifically in evangelical churches or is this just something uh, innate to institutions uh, with, with human beings who are narcissistic kind of at the helm? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I'll say that I, I, I think uh, we need to be careful and I've, I've seen this a number of times of saying, well, this is a, this is also a problem over here. And then sometimes what follows that is this is also a human problem. And, and that can be a form of justification in which people appeal to what they consider to be normal within the culture. And, and so it's a, it's a way of saying, well, you know, then this organization, um, this denomination, this church uh, shouldn't, be, shouldn't be seen as an outlier. Uh, and, and so I, I, I caution against, against that anytime I, I, I see it. Um, I think those questions need to be asked. Uh, is this worse um, in religious settings than, let's say, education or um, the, the culture at large? Because if we can't answer that question, then we're not going to take a hard look at the why. Um, if it is indeed worse, then, we, then the next question is, why is it worse? Um, are there contributing factors that are unique to religious settings or unique to this denomination over here or unique to this group over here that might make um, abuse more likely to occur in those settings? Those are really difficult questions to ask 
especially if those groups are going to ask it of themselves. And I, you know, I would suggest that somebody outside of that group uh, asks those questions and seeks to answer those questions. Um, but I think they need to be asked. There, to my knowledge, um, isn't any data out there uh, that would suggest um, in with any kind of re reliability that uh, this problem is worse in religious circles, Protestant circles, than um, other circles. Uh, just that data isn't out there to my knowledge. Partly what makes that difficult is because we don't know precisely how many churches there are. Uh, we don't know precisely how many pastors there are. Uh, we don't know how many people are attending church. Um, we know how how many people are uh, in in the, let's say, uh, in the school system. Uh, we know how many schools there are. We know how many teachers there are. We have that data, and so we can we can look at the number of of teachers who have been arrested for a sex crime. Um, one report that I saw suggested that 500 uh, were arrested in 2015. And now you could you could take that number and and calculate uh, the percentage of of teachers in a given year uh, across America that that are being arrested. But you can't do that for pastors um, because we just don't have the, the data that we need to determine that. Mm. Uh, I've, you know, I've I've done some of my own rough rough ca ca calculations. So, for example, I have uh, I, I I have my own database. Uh, I have a I have a list of ninety stories of pastors. Who have been arrested since year 2000, just in the state of uh, Alabama, and that is a, I think, a consider considerable number uh, when you when you calculate the uh, that percentage um, after trying to determine uh, how many churches there are in that state. And so every time I do that, every time I look at a state, or every time I try to isolate that, I it comes out to roughly um, twice uh, the number, or the the percentage is twice as high. The rate is twice as high in Protestant uh, circles than uh, it is in in the overall population or the education system. And and so I do think um, there is something to that. Uh, those are questions that I'm still trying to seek answers to, um, but there's not strong, reliable data that's that, that I know of that, that's out there. Right. Which even if it was, uh, if it was that they're exactly equal, I think mm -hmm. we would be utterly disappointed. <laughs> yes, right. right. We should the whole purpose of the church mm -hmm. uh, is to be a bastion of justice and truth. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so if it's even close, let alone if there's a chance that it's double, right, uh, that is a, a devastating thing. So I know you pointed out a couple factors uh, in your dissertation, one uh, being that evangelical churches often uh, have what uh, was called a clan culture, mm -hmm. uh, which can uh, support or perpetuate, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, I don't remember if it was that makes abuse more likely, but it makes it more likely that the institution will cover up for one of those other members right. and not necessarily let the truth out about the abuse. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second one was one that I uh, certainly saw, um, and I and I think I've seen this all across in so many of the stories I've seen is 
uh, kind of what we were talking about, where the, the reputation of the church, mm-hmm. uh, which is often in, I think, evangelical church culture, integrally linked to the reputation of the lead pastor, yeah. whoever the main persona is, mm-hmm. that is deemed as part of God's reputation. Right. And therefore, nothing that hurts that could be good. <laughs> yes. And yep. anything that it, that poses a threat to that mm-hmm. must be bad. Right. Yeah, I I think those are two uh, factors are huge. Um, the clan culture uh, we see in a lot of churches and, and organizations. I mean, every major group uh, that that I have studied has a clan culture at the top. Uh, that to me is a clear common factor. Because what you what you have are, are people at the top who perhaps have gotten to the top because of their closeness to each other, because of their family members, because of their friends. And so um, they get to the top and they together perhaps see anything that would threaten the reputation of the organization as a threat to their clan, as a threat to their family, as a threat to their group. And so they might choose to protect each other um, to protect the clan when 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 they are threatened, and so I see that, and then I also uh, do think that um, there is a sense uh, within a lot of um, uh, churchgoers, and I think it's a sense that needs to be rooted out that the that the lead pastor, the senior pastor, is God's very agent on earth, in their life, anointed by God. And so if people are viewing that person in that way, and if people are also what often is the case, taught to view people in that way, then one, it it sets them up to not believe anyone who says something that would contradict that, that role. And so someone comes along and says, a child perhaps who says, hey, you know, this this pastor abused me. Well, if the church has been taught to believe that the pastor is anointed by God, then how are they going to reconcile that with what this child is saying about about the pastor? And so I think that's I think that's really potentially dangerous. And and I also think that it sets the people up then also not just to protect the pastor but to protect the role itself. So the role is, it's not just that the pastor is considered sacred, the role is considered sacred, the pulpit is considered sacred. So it's not just that they have to protect a person, but they have to protect a role which the community has established as sacred and, and, and holy and, and set apart in some way. Well, the sheer irony too, which <laughs> I know you know this, but it was just dumbfounding for me, is knowing that if, especially in my situation where we weren't saying that children were uh, abused, we were saying you're being a jerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh-huh. the church would have loved mm-hmm. if the guy just stood up there and said, "Yeah, you know what? I've been a jerk," mm-hmm. and I know how much his life and his st- stress level and. Uh, 
like this whole frantic energy of having to put on this front, how much he could have relaxed and how healing it would have been for him mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to do the honest, transparent thing. So th- that was the thing that had us all smashing our heads against the wall is like the thing that they were most scared of actually isn't scary. Yes. <laughs> like it's this, it's this pretend, uh, situation. And then we all now are like down this, this road of more lies and deceit and yep. abuse and all this other stuff, just cause we are scared of this thing that shouldn't have ever been scary in the first place. Yep. Yep. And, and there's a line in Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, and I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. Uh, but, uh, it says something to the effect that, you know, that you know this 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 guy was was wasn't um, ashamed uh, to make all the foolish uh, choices that that he made. Um, he wasn't ashamed enough to do that, but he was too ashamed to to do the thing that would have made him wise, which was to confess that and acknowledge that and turn from that. And so that's the the, uh, the irony of it. They're not ashamed. Uh, not a, for whatever reason, they don't have enough shame to keep them from from committing the harm or ignoring the harm. But when it comes time to actually expose it or to be exposed, then they resist that because they're trying to avoid shame. makes me think another question I have for you which again this is probably beyond the scope of your uh, you know your official research but just kind of want to get your take is like you know what's what's the root of the problem you know so uh, so understanding being able to explain and describe these man image management tactics mm-hmm. is hopefully helpful for people to, to not be deceived by them but like, do you think the C.J. Mahaney's and the Mark Driscoll's of the world, like, if they read your dissertation, is anything going to change? Like, oh. is it a is it an understanding thing? Is it a like you mentioned earlier? Is it simply narcissism? Is it the way narcissism and religious authority kind of interact? Uh, like, what's the root of for the people who are uh, the the biggest players in perpetuating mm-hmm. uh, these issues. What is your take on kind of the the root of that issue? Yeah, and I and I've been thinking about that for some time now, and, and watching as as people respond to these events and try to diagnose the root. Uh, and you'll have a lot of different um, opinions out there. I do think it is a root structure. Um, but I perhaps uh, this is where I'm at currently. The deepest root is is one of power. Hmm. That the person, and it often is a person or a group of people, elites within the organization, or within the system, who, at some point, developed a thirst for power. And then they used various means to grasp that power deceptive means to get it from people and then have continued to retain that power through deception. And that power can be achieved and retained uh, through various means. It could be through theologies. It could be through defining uh, people's roles, the roles of men, the roles of women. It could be through restructuring uh, in, in, in organization, 
in such a way that the the leader is more and more isolated. Um, so, I think what is at the deepest root, often in a in a church or a system or organization, is a person who is at the top, or a group of people who are at the top, and they have a thirst for 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 power. They have a thirst for possession. They want to possess whatever they desire, whatever that might be. They want to possess it, and so they 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 get the power that they need in order to achieve that possession. Mm. So it's confronting that power and then asking the question. This is why I think if someone is exposed um, to be uh, to, to have this history of abusive behavior and corruption and mismanagement and what I think we need to consider is whether or not everything that person did was an attempt to serve their own needs. And so the, 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 the constitution that they set up, the bylaws that they created, the theologies that they pushed, the, the, the people they hired, the, the, the buildings that they built, everything wasn't inherently deceptive and intended to be a feeder to that person's power. It's a scary question to ask. Yeah, yeah, and and for that, for those people, you ask, you know, if they if they ask that question, if they read the, the this kind of work, um, will they change? Um, I don't, I don't have hope in that, unless somehow all of that power is removed from them. Hmm. Then perhaps the change will come after they drop that power, after it's taken from them in some way. Um, or they or they give it up, and then they live without that power for a significant period of time until they learn, um, if that's possible, until they learn uh, to to um, find life in its true source. Yeah, one of the uh, kind of catch twenty twos which I've seen, and I think it's uh, it's predominant was we, those of us that were on the staff and uh, kind of raised red flags with the lead pastor, we did it internally uh, at first, and we just framed it as an intervention. Mm-hmm. And we basically said there are issues of, of an addiction to power mm-hmm. wow. that we think are killing you, and it's make, causing you to hurt people that we deep down don't think you actually want to be hurting them. Mm. Um, and part of what we suggested was that he needed a break, not because anybody else wanted his role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the last thing any of us wanted was like to take his power, right? Of course, that, it was framed as like this coup. That's what he thought, yeah. Yeah, but um, but we basically said like the way life works is you will never get free of your addiction to this power that the that the role of lead pastor of a big fancy church is giving you if you don't, take a break from it mm, yep. <laughs> like you've taught on sabbath you've preached it like this is your chance to walk it out and of course what the board did to help and protect this man was to say we'll never take that away from you wow so the thing they thought they were doing to save him was the thing we we're saying you're going to kill him with yep. this because and that's what i've seen so so many times is that person in that role, like you say, and the the preeminence of that role has to be protected. Mm. 
But it seems to me <laughs> that the only thing that would save some of these yeah. people and, and really lead to a transformation and healing would be if they could actually step out of that. And we didn't even want him fired. We just thought he needed a break, mm -hmm. you know, some form of true sabbatical yeah. uh, where it was actually a, a time for him to detach mm -hmm. <laughs> from uh, the addiction to being in that role, being the one with the microphone and all that. And the board tried to save him from us by saying they would never do that for him and he could always have that power. And so, so much uh, of this to me, I, I've seen that same thing over and over again, uh, like you're saying, is protecting the preeminence of that role uh, and that person in that role, uh, the lead pastor uh, position. But really, it seems like it's protecting that power, which, as we've said, so many people think has been ordained by God, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> and, has, and that that power, especially as a church grows or becomes successful, that that power is like the the marker of success. <laughs> yep. And so if it's been successful in the past and, and we said God did that and we all gave up our lives to support this thing, then it's all un, untouchable. Yep. Uh, so I guess a question I want to ask you is a question I've been asking myself for four or five years now. And sometimes I think I have an answer and sometimes I don't, which is, it, is church really possible for Christians without completely rehauling the way we think about power in, in every relationship from me to you, uh, from what leadership is from, and then from the way we've, we've trained ourselves to think about an organized body of, <laughs> of people is church possible if it still has the kind of celebrity persona at the top, uh, and a whole bunch of people who are trying to kind of feed off of that uh, power in a sense underneath. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, that's a good question. And, and another one that I've been wrestling with uh, for some time now, uh, because I don't want to simply deconstruct these things uh, without having in mind uh, how they might be reconstructed, or at least at some point being a part of that, if, if there's an opportunity to do that. I think a church, um, by its very nature, is is a body, um, is an organism uh, made up of various parts, and when one part of that body uh, has uh, too much control, um, is celebrated by the rest of the body, uh, is granted this celebrity status, then I think it ceases to be what it was designed to be. And, and so, yeah, I do think that we need to rethink the nature and purpose of our churches. Um, I think that's ultimately perhaps where all of this might, might, might go and where, where, where I hope it goes. Um, I think we need to, to radically rethink what we mean by church, um, what it looks like when people get together, uh, what we have now as a predominant um, mode of church are buildings um, and increasingly um, larger buildings uh, that people enter into and they sit and they watch and they sing and people are on a stage performing, playing, speaking, and then they leave 
and they think that they've gone to church, but they haven't done many of the things that the New Testament says we're supposed to do when we get together. And, and so I, I think what we often have um, are crowds, crowds of people that meet to meet to pay, um, meet to um, listen to and applaud and, and watch a, a performance on a stage. And, and I do have a, have a hard time uh, with, with seeing that that is, the, that is increasingly uh, the, the, the motto of, of church today. Hmm. And, and what I see it as, um, I see it as people who, who are not on the front lines in battle against evil power. Hmm. So there is evil happening all around us. And church is in so many areas and in, in, in so many situations, uh, sort of like um, people sitting around a campfire behind the front lines, not realizing that there's a battle all around them. And they're singing songs and they're having a good time and more and more people are gathering around those fires Meanwhile, uh, the the front lines where they ought to be is growing increasingly thin, and more and more people are being harmed, and more and more people are being destroyed. Lives are being destroyed, and we think that we're being successful because we have a lot of people get gathered around these campfires. Mm-hmm. And and what I'd like to see is is people leave those big boxes, not necessarily leave in the sense of, hey, I'm not going to attend this church anymore, but to go out to where the battle is, to where the front lines are, and for for that to be uh, their primary experience. And then you get together because you need to, because you need to be encouraged, because you need to be equipped to go back out and do and, and, and do, do, do battle against evil. So I, th- I think that's, for, for me, a, a, a perhaps a different vision of what church church might be in the future. Yeah, that's good. Okay, wait, I just have one last question for you. So how has your story and then these years of, you know, looking behind the curtain and trying to see the ugliness of this that a lot of us never wanted to see or know that existed, Mm -hmm. um, how has all this affected your faith? Um, It has strengthened it um, in perhaps an odd way. I am becoming more and more convinced that evil does exist because I see the patterns. I see the patterns not just in real time um, now, uh, but also throughout history. Um, going back to the, the very beginning of time, I see this pattern. And it is a language. It's a language that I think evil wants to keep hidden. And as I grow more and more convinced about the intelligence of evil, it also reminds me that there there must be a good. Um, so in that odd way, it's taking me into um, a an understanding that I didn't have before. That isn't just shedding light on evil, but also shedding light on, 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 on good as well. And it's also exposing me not just to those who are perpetrating these evils, 
but also to the to the good and the resilience of people who are who are surviving those evils and who are uh, advocating for others who are uh, combating the evil head-on and so I've been amazed at how many people are really facing this head-on um, even listening to you describe uh, what you and the others did at your church to bring some change and to intervene and you're willing to sacrifice uh, your your own well-being to to to, to do that uh, that that to me brings brings hope and encouragement awesome thanks for sharing the I hope I remember uh, most of what I read in your dissertation. Uh, there's <laughs> <Me too>. one <laughs> piece. <laughs> there's one piece I know I won't forget, and that is uh, you dedicated it to your wife and your kids. Yeah. And you wrote a little blessing, uh, and you said, "May they grow up to be truth tellers." Mm-hmm. And that uh, little line, as simple as it is. Uh, I think is a is a beautiful beautiful wish not just for your own kids but mm-hmm. uh but for everybody. So uh I just want to say Wade thanks for being a truth teller yourself. Uh I didn't know your story and the the cost of that for you personally until now. Um but I've appreciated uh all the truth you've been telling on Twitter and uh and with your research and uh so thanks for your voice. Thank you Tim and I appreciate hearing s- some of your story here. Um uh, during our time together uh, and also appreciate your your interest in this subject um, I'm, I'm very encouraged to know that you experienced it and also you're you're speaking about it cool is your uh, dissertation still available if people want it yeah it is um, you can I mean people can find it on the dissertation um, d- databases proquest I don't know if you have to pay for it there or, or not um, or at least you might have to have access I do have a link out there where people can can down download it. Um, so it's somewhere in my Twitter feed. Um, so if people search for it, they should be able to find it. Cool. And what's your Twitter handle? W A D three M U L L E N Wade Mullen, but with a three at the end of the Wade. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Wade. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Tim. Okay, Nate, you're here now. Yes. We are in the future. <laughs> uh, you missed the interview because you're busy. I've heard it now, though. I've heard it now, though. Yeah. So uh, just wanted to catch up with you for a few minutes on the tail end of the episode and get your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, I was sad to miss it. Um, I, was, I found myself like almost asking a question in a couple different spots, and I was like, oh, that's not live. I can't do that. But I've been, yeah, in baby mode the last, I don't even know how many days because I'm in baby mode. Um, so fortunately, Buffer, the company I work for, lets me have a number of weeks off, which is awesome, and I'm able to just focus on that. But focusing on that is really crazy, and so the podcast has kind of taken a backseat for a little while. Um, yeah, we had a beautiful baby girl. Her name is Zinni Lee or Zinnia like the flower people ask us like oh where'd you come up with that I mean, it's just a flower I just, that's all it is actually i had to be told it was a flower too i didn't know um so we have two daughters and super fun but also crazy i've used that word a lot crazy so super happy that we were able to have weight on I, I i thought it was excellent and mostly because when i first started listening i was thinking 
okay, this is like these extreme cases of sexual abuse we see in uh, some of these churches. But, you know, it's not for like most churches that aren't going to experience something like this. But then he started describing like what to look for. Like what are the what are the things that are in place in a in a church or in a religious organization where you would see a breeding ground, I guess, for this to happen. And he started describing things and I was like, whoa, this is like this is like nearly every religious institution or church that I've, you know, helped start and and lead and and plant and all that kind of stuff. Even if I wouldn't say like a crisis has happened at at most churches necessarily, but but these things are in place to where like if a crisis did happen, like it would almost make sense to, you know, like you could see some of these things happening, um, the cover up or the, you know, difficulty in questioning the man of God um, and, and criticizing the man of God, that kind of stuff. Like, I was like, whoa, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, when I first uh, discovered Wade on Twitter and his research, it, I mean, I really mean it. And some of uh, others of us that were at the church I used to work for, it felt like <laughs> someone had watched it. You know, like it was reading a description of what we'd seen. And we went through a situation of abuse and cover up. But it also some of what he's talking about was like all the things we had watched for years leading up to that before mm. the the kind of crisis moment had ever hit. Right. And okay. Essentially, a lot of it's just describing evangelical church culture that is a culture of protecting the powerful at the expense of victims. <sighs> yeah, I know. um, a lot of people would have pushback on that. And I think I would have pushback on that because I haven't necessarily experienced that firsthand. But I think what Wade helped me see is that this lifting up the the man of God or the men of God on the elder board, like it's the, it's the congregation almost that, that wants to have this person to look to. Um, I, you know, we could talk about like why that is or whatever, but like we're almost the ones that are setting this up. And then you combine that with most of the time, the person that is planting and deciding to start churches and they tend to be and and you know this was kind of uh we were in this world so i mean we're <laughs> we were involved in this or maybe even kind of headed down this path ourselves but they tend to be the ones that have like power and maybe control issues and some narcissism mixed in like they tend to be like the ones you that probably shouldn't be doing <laughs> this thing even if this even if this structure was good like these probably shouldn't be the people doing that and then you have this structure and and the congregation that is like setting this up and and looking for and and wanting it's like a perfect storm really it's like it's like set up for failure almost and um yeah so it was it was really helpful to see him kind of lay all that out there was one thing he said though um at the end when he was describing i think you you asked like is it even possible uh for us to like is is church even possible is there a way that this would even work um and he laid out kind of he started he started saying things that sounded pretty much exactly like the type of church that i was trying to plant with a couple other people uh in san francisco and i was super excited about the idea of let's just get rid of the stage let's get rid of kind of like the the one person up front and we point all the chairs to them and we just hear what they have to say and then we then we all go home and then we do that again every week um, and, and make it more like, hey, let's go out. Let's be on the front lines, as Wade described it. Let's be, let's be out there. We called it on mission. Let's be out there on mission to reach the lost, to save souls, that kind of thing. And then we'll, we, we'll have to kind of come back together and, and get encouraged and lick our wounds and, and then go back out, right? And so that little gathering would be the, the encouragement, licking wounds, you know, <laughs> thing. And that would, be, that would be what church is. And I, I just wanted to say, like, 
there are, there are aspects of that that still I I think make more sense. Kind of this house church, no stage, just people meeting together kind of thing that uh, that I I like and I think are are better. But at least what I saw is it's still very very easy to have the the head honcho, the guy you're looking to at the top, and then even in the house churches, just the 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 people um, that are sort of at the top of the of the thing that are still. I mean, someone still kind of leads the thing. Um, and we still want to lift that person up. And I don't know, I, I just, from my experience, it's still very, very possible for a lot of these types of things to happen, even in that. So I would just say like, yeah, I, I appreciate that take, but I still don't know if that actually is going to solve the problems, but it might be a little bit better. Yeah, I, I hear you because I, I know where you're coming from. I, th- I think the key piece though is that uh, when Wade talks about the church going out and doing the work of the church, he means going out and calling out injustices and speaking truth to power. True. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a pastor and a seminary professor who did his PhD calling out the ways that <laughs> that churches and evangelical institutions uh, rampantly cover up their their abuses. So that that and, and to Wade and to the whole stream of people, uh, Julianne, who's one that listens to our show, and, and others who are in this advocacy kind of community, um, especially some of the more vocal, I would say, prophetic uh, advocates for victims who call out churches who rampantly cover up abuse and dismiss the cries of victims. That is the work of the church in, in these people's minds, right? Which is very different <laughs> than than the other world that you and I come from, which is saying the work of the church is, you know, evangelism or, you know, planting churches or whatever. And if any person comes up and says something that might make the church look bad, that's going to get in the way of the work of the church. We need to dismiss those voices. Right. This is saying listening to those voices is what it means to be a church. And finding those victims who haven't been listened to, exalting their voices and calling out those in power who have dismissed those voices, that is what it means to do, say, ministry or mission or Christian anything. Right. And not just not just the, the voices in the church that maybe have been abused or something, but you're talking about like justice things in our communities and in our cities and um, flipping the power uh, dynamics in those places and calling out injustice and and uh lifting up the voices and the cries of the the poor and uh, and yeah if that's what the work is if that's what we're going out and doing and then getting back together with some of our friends and like talking about those things i can get behind that as like okay i can see that as a, a church loosely defined that would potentially work totally i mean uh, i don't this can get in or cannot all, all my favorite christians who give me the most hope and like Christian oomph these days are people who are calling out abuse in churches. Yeah. Like that was why part of why I wanted to have weight on. And, and to so many in the world, so many who are using these impression management strategies, those are the threats to the church. To me at this stage of life, those are the people who are like the pioneers of, of Christianity in this culture, in this time. All right. I didn't actually have anything on this piece of paper, but you got to have the crumpling, the crumpling paper sound at the end, at the end of the interview. <laughs> I didn't even know what that was. I thought a rat was getting in the drudge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are doing a series on hell coming up. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that. We have a lot of responses that we received from you and um, we're super excited about this. So it, uh, I think it's going to be fun. 
It's going to be fun. Hey, so. this was supposed to be my show. Hey, so we're doing a series on hell coming up. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Stay tuned. Peace. Smash that subscribe button. <laughs> Smash it. <laughs>